from DevX Studios in Washington, D.C. This is Long Story Short, the global development news show. And today is a pretty big day for development news. A new bill, the Better Utilization of Investment Leading to Development Act, aka the BUILD Act, was passed in Congress, paving the way to evolve an existing government agency, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, into a bigger, more resourced, and more far-reaching U.S. development and finance institution. Here to explain what this means and how this happened is Associate Editor Idva Saldinger. Idva, thanks so much for joining me this week. Thanks for having me. Busy day. Indeed. <laughs> I want to start with some background about what exactly led to this moment. You've obviously been following this very closely for a long time. What was the rationale for growing OPIC into this bigger, shinier institution? Yeah, you know, the, the one thing I'll say is that um, most people involved would not call this growing OPIC. They would actually say that rather than expanding OPIC, we're actually replacing it with a different institution that obviously will have all of the components of OPIC currently. Um, but I think that has been an important distinction in making the case both within the administration and certainly on Capitol Hill for uh, th this legislation and for the idea of having a new modern uh, US development finance institution. And so I think the rationale really starts with um, that at its core. Uh, US development finance has not been updated substantially since um, OPIC was created in the 1970s. And so I think people for quite a while have been saying that it's high time to update US development finance capabilities, that they're outdated, that they haven't kept up with the times and current modern financial instruments. And also part of it is that the US is unable to invest in certain projects or collaborate with other um, countries and other development finance institutions from other countries because of some of the constraints that it had, uh, constraints that this new agency um, won't have, for example, equity authority. And so I think that's been a big part of the rationale. I think another piece of it was about uh, consolidation or streamlining development finance authorities within the US government. I do want to get into this a little bit because you know, you're right, it's not just a changeover in terms of OPIC, it's also taking private sector pieces of other agencies. What does that look like? Yeah, so, so I think the really big um, piece that's going to shift is USAID's Development Credit Authority is going to be part of the new USDFC. Um, and that's a an issue, a piece of the legislation that um, had a bit of debate ar ar around it earlier in the process. But I think, um, and, and I think, you know, looking now in conversations I've had in the past few days about what the road ahead will look like, I think people are thinking a lot about how do you successfully sort of move that into the new U USDFC? How do you look at some of the um, cultural differences between the two organizations? How do you ensure that um, USAID missions are still bought in because they're the pipeline for DCA. You know, earlier this year, um, former USAID, excuse me, former USAID administrators Eric Postel, who's an assistant administrator and former USAID administrator Andrew Natsios, penned an op-ed for us saying that the Development Credit Authority needs to stay in USAID. Why? I mean, I know there are things like culture. Um, and obviously the kind of bureaucratic hurdles of rolling them into a different agency, but why is that of particular contention? 
Yeah, I think, you know, folks at USAID would argue that DCA is working really well and is a really important instrument um, for the agency. I think uh, folks who were working on this on Capitol Hill would say that um, with a full understanding of sort of what the new agency is supposed to do and the vision behind it, and if you sort of put aside your um, sort of specific camps and some of the turf battles that might exist within the development community, uh, that you would see that it's a more natural place for it to fit because it's in line with other um, types of lending instruments. Um, and, and to be honest, uh, it was a really key part in convincing administration officials and folks on the Hill um, that this legislation should go forward because it, uh, it is it's sort of a key part of the um, consolidation um, efforts in the bill without essentially without being able to argue that um, you know we're eliminating redundancy and we're sort of streamlining and making government more efficient um, this bill might not have passed and so I think that you know certainly people are justified in believing that maybe it's not the ideal thing maybe USAID would have to like find another way to use um, their loan guarantee authority in the future if this doesn't go as well. But I think you have seen commitment um, since then, including from USAID Administrator Mark Green, um, that they really want to find ways to make this work. And I think people are thinking about that now as the planning will get underway for uh, transition and for building this new agency. I do want to get into... Uh, some of the conversation around the kind of congressional battle to get this through. But what, what is the origin of this idea? I know that, um, you know, full transparency, I'm a Center for Global Development alum, uh, but Ben Leo and Todd Moss over at CGD had penned a memo around 2011, but this feels like this is the culmination of a lot of work, but also a lot of recognition that the model had been outdated for some time, probably well before 2011. Yeah, and I think it's important to note also that it, that OPIC hasn't had a long-term reauthorization in more than a decade. So I think there are certainly, you know, people in the development community saw that there was a need to do something, that sort of instability of relying on an annual appropriations bill to reauthorize um, an agency is not ideal. Um, but, but you very rightly, you know, give credit to um, Todd Moss and Ben Leo because I think a lot of people will say that um, both that first paper but even more um, some of the more in-depth papers that they wrote after that really helped provide a blueprint for the legislation that we have today. And I think, you know, you saw other think tanks and, and folks at other think tanks get involved as well. But um, you know, in talking to people both in the administration and on the Hill, they both say that those were really important documents in making the case um, internally, making the case to partners, and having something to point back to that, you know, here's, you know, even in debates over DCA and other things, in fact, in fact, some of their recommendations went even farther than the, than the bill that we ended up with today. But I think it's definitely fair to say that that's part of the history um, Obama's Global Development Council also made recommendations um, around making similar changes. Obviously, that didn't happen within within that administration. Um, and then there's you know a, a lot of people who deserve credit for it as well. Senator Coons has been thinking about this issue for quite a while. They 
Um, you know, his staff had a draft bill for a while, and um, they weren't sure it was going to be able to go, especially um, with, with Trump's election. I think, um, you know, Representative Ted Yoho from Florida has been a really key linchpin in this process, and, you know, I think he's been thinking about it for, for a while, and his staff has been really active in writing it. And I think you sort of saw um, a confluence of factors come together in the last year. I, I also think that, I mean, it's important to note that OPEC historically has not always had a lot of support. And, and I think you can point to, for example, in the, in the legislation that passed Power Af the Power Africa Act, um, that on the House side, a reauthorization of OPIC was passed, but it was taken out of the Senate bill because basically they didn't have the votes to get it passed. And so that was in 2015. That was three years ago. And then we saw in Trump's first budget that OPIC had been zeroed out, that basically the budget recommended that we eliminate the agency. So this really was, you know, segues nicely into my next question is that you know, ever since the Trump White House kind of came into existence, you know, you think about Trump and you think about foreign aid, most people in our community just sort of sigh. Um, it doesn't always seem like the most positive relationship. So I would love to hear a little bit in your conversations how the buy-in process really worked for this because you mentioned, um, you know, Chris Coons introducing the bill. He did that alongside uh, Senator Corker. This really was a bipartisan effort. How did this come to be in an age uh, that is not so friendly, perhaps, to foreign assistance? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think people would look at this and, and sort of scratch their heads, especially because of the, the changes. Um, and I think the reality is, is that it was a number of people and it was a proposal that sort of came at the right time. Uh, I think the National Security Council was key to getting the administration behind this. And I think um, there are some key people there who... Um, played important roles in, in that. And I think that with the NSC, they were looking for ways to counter China. They so were looking- It's interesting that yeah. you, know, you don't usually think about the NSC as being the a key proponent in driving forward legislation. I mean, actually- Purely act development. Actually, uh, the MCC came out of the NSC, really. So we have sort of a blueprint for this happening in, in the past. And so I think that, um, you know, it's, it might not be sort of the first place people think because there's often debates about development and national security and where do the two meet. And, um, but I think that in, in this case, that was a really important justification. I think um, the fact that this was seen as sort of streamlining, consolidating, making the U.S. government more efficient helped to get OMB on board. Um, that's an argument that sort of worked there. And then, and you really did fairly early on in the process have administration buy-in. And that meant that the you know, administration officials were at some of those early meetings about what the legislation should look like. So I, I think that that was obviously critical to the passage of this bill. You had sort of folks within the NSC and the OMB involved in the process. And you also had um, Ray Washburn the head of OPIC, who was having high-level meetings and was talking to people on the Hill, you also had a lobbying effort that was going on both within the administration and on the Hill to get people on board. So it was really um, a whole host of factors. But I think within the administration, trying to find a tool to counter China, trying to find ways to make 
um, government more efficient. Those were arguments that that really worked. And um, quite frankly, I think I think the administration is like happy to own this. And I think that a lot of people would say this is the most significant development in U.S. aid policy in at least a decade. So I think it really will be uh, fascinating to see where it all goes. In the conversations that you've been having, how much does this countering Chinese influence purview factor into, or how much will it factor into the mandate of this institution? And do you get the sense that this will be very heavily influential on the way that that agency operates and the programming that it it is involved in? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that it was an important tool to justify um, the passage of the bill, and I think the national security argument at large is important and will, and sort of this foreign policy and national security objective will be um, part of how the new agency makes its decisions. I do think there's some concern within development circles about whether that will outweigh um, development concerns in certain cases. I think there's a lot of people who would say on the national security side, if we're investing in making markets in countries work better and in improving the quality of life of people and in economic development writ large, that we are improving sort of de facto our national security environment because you know, people with jobs in stable countries are less likely to make the world unstable. Um, so I think that in some ways it's just a different way of getting to an end point. I do think, you know, one of the things that um, is in the legislation is that current sort of processes and safeguards um, and policies will carry over to the new institution. We'll, have, we'll see some new policies, I would imagine, as well. Um, but there was some strengthening through the legislative process of some of the language around development. The new, ag uh, the new agency will have a chief development officer who will um, be responsible for looking at ensuring that there's a development mandate. The board will be looking at that. I know folks on Capitol Hill are going to be watching to make sure that that's carried out. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's something to watch, but uh, I think it's mainly seen, you know, how does it counter China? It's about giving alternative investment um, opportunities in ways that are more targeted at development impact than perhaps some of the Chinese investments. That's sort of the way it's being discussed. What are you hearing about the methodology by which this new institution will be making its investments? Are there pieces that differ from OPIC? I remember that you know OPIC has gotten in some hot water in the past over some of the investments that they've made. Yeah, I mean, look, the what we know now from the legislation is that the the sort of uh, safeguards around environmental issues and human rights issues will carry over into the new agency. Um, there were definitely a bunch of organizations lobbying for that, and that language was sort of uh, strengthened in, through the markup process in committee, um, along with some of the language about the development mandate. Um, I, I think where we'll definitely see new policies and guidelines is around some of the new instruments that the agency will have, but I don't think um, at least right now, that we're going to see huge changes in, for example, its um, development matrix that it uses to assess development and, and uh, impact and make decisions on its investments. I think they might look at that again, and I think that probably would come under the purview of this new chief development officer to say, okay, are we measuring the right things if we're making more of a push into 
you know, low-income countries and low- and middle-income countries and away from middle-income countries, do we have different sets of considerations? Um, and so I think some of it remains to be seen because it all has to be built. Uh, but I think for now, basically, the policies that are in place at, at OPIC will carry over to the new institution. You know, early on uh, in this conversation, you mentioned um, you know, this not so much being an evolution of OPIC as a replacement for OPIC. Um, you've mentioned this new chief development officer, which just makes me wonder, will the current staff at OPIC be the same staff in this new development institution? And will the leadership be the same or will they be confirming different leaders? Yeah, I mean, in talking to folks at OPIC today, they don't ex expect like huge changes in staffing. Certainly, uh, like folks who are currently working at OPIC are going to continue to be doing what they've been doing in the past, and the folks from DCA will come over and continue working in a similar capacity. In terms of leadership at the top, um, what I understand is that um, at the end of the transition process, uh, Ray Washburn and David Bohegan, who are both Senate-confirmed um, leaders at the top of OPIC, would become either in an acting or interim capacity the leaders of the new Development Finance Corporation, um, but that eventually they probably would need to be confirmed again by the Senate, but I think there's a little bit of a lack of clarity around exactly how that would happen or when that would happen. Is there any precedent kind of in among development agencies for that kind of transition? Um, obviously, We've had other develop, so I think MCC is sort of an interesting example. You had to stand up an agency there, and, and there you had probably less of a foundation than you have with, with the DFC. Um, and there there was language in there about having interim leadership, et cetera. So um, there's a little bit of a precedent in some of that. Uh, I think that because a lot of the core functions will be OPIC's core functions, um, sort of makes sense. They will have to add some other functions and, and figure out which teams will take on some of that work and that has to do with some additional capabilities that they'll have. So you have been running around today back and forth covering this on the Hill. When, how did today unfold and what does the timeline look like for this transition? Yeah, you know, I mean, today was actually like not that exciting in terms of what happened on the Hill. Um, I, what I'll say is that um, the BUILD Act, we, I don't think we mentioned this yet, but the BUILD Act was attached to the FAA reauthorization, the Federal Aviation Administration reauthorization. Um, and that was done in part um, because the FAA was a must-pass bill. Um, and it was a way to sort of get around some timing constraints in the Senate. So there were, um, you know, if build on it, build on its own probably would have struggled to get time on the floor um, for debate, and it might have been hard to pass. And so um, this was an avenue to ensure that it would be able to um, pass more quickly. Um, there was a vote at about noon today. It started at noon, and then shortly after 12:30, we sort of knew the vote, and the vote came in 93 in favor, six against. So passed. Um, by a significant margin, colors, one might um, say. and uh, yeah, and then you know my inbox inbox started popping up with people celebrating, people from the development community sort of celebrating the the success of, of the bill passing. And if you had to estimate the number of ta-da party emojis <laughs> that you got in your inbox today, 
how many would you You know, say? a lot of these statements are probably a little bit stiffer than using emojis, but I'm sure that was happening on, on, on the inside. I'll, I'll tell you that um, I, I spoke actually last week when it looked like this was, you know, the vote was, was imminent and going to come up this week um, with former OPIC CEO Rob Mossbacher, and he has been doing a lot of lobbying work on, on this and has been a big proponent of the bill. And um, he said he had a champagne rate waiting for the moment that it passed. So hopefully he's he's enjoying a glass of champagne tonight. A week later, <laughs> must be nice and cold. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's important to, to note that I don't think we've gotten a lot into is, is what this new agency is going gonna, is gonna to do. Um, and I think that uh, there is rightly quite a bit of excitement about some of the new tools and instruments that it will have that will allow it not only to do more lending on its own, but to partner with other um, institutions as well. And I think the, the biggest among those is the equity authority. It's something that people have been calling for for a long time and has been a point of contention in the past. Um, but also importantly, uh, uh, the new DFC will be able to do local currency lending, and so that really reduces foreign exchange risk, which is an important component. Um, and is that something that differs heavily from the OPIC model? OPIC did not have equity authority. It could not do local currency lending. It had a mandatory U.S. nexus, which is now sort of a recommendation, but is not a requirement, which means that the new DFC would be able to work with um, foreign investors, not just U.S. companies, which is particularly important for lower income countries where maybe U.S. companies are not willing to take the risk, but maybe regional players might be. Um, so all of these things are sort of new tools, and there and there are you know there are some others in there as well, um, and some structural things like this chief development officer, a chief risk officer that will change the way um, the agency looks and works. And obviously, you know, part of what they'll have to figure out once it's signed, which we expect will be this week. Um, is you know you have to create the sort of legal frameworks. You have to create the investing frameworks for how you're going to deal with all of these things. But um, the bill does have language in it that says that the focus of this DFC should really be on um, low-income and lower-middle-income countries and requires notification if they're going to invest in sort of upper-middle-income countries. Um, and there has to be a specific justification around when they do that. And so um, you know I think a lot of people are hopeful that it will mean that the new DFC takes a bit more risk and, and, and works in uh, environments where it's most needed. I have another question that I had when you were you know, giving all this information is just how prepared to stand up the DFC everyone is at this point. I mean, is it the kind of thing where we knew the bill would pass and so we're just going to roll it all out and we have that together? Is there a mission statement? Is, are all of yeah. those materials in existence already? So most of this has to be created. I, you know, I think people have obviously been thinking about this, but there's also been a lot of, um, we're not 100% sure the bill's going to pass until the bill passes, and so we don't want to jinx anything by already starting. You know, there will have to be an interagency process to figure out how does the relationship between USAID and the new DFC work? Um, how do you bring DCA over? So basically the legislation gives, um, gives the administration 120 days to come up with a transition plan. Um, and we don't know exactly when that transition would happen, but um, from folks I've talked to, they anticipate that the new 
um, DFC would probably open its doors on October 1st, 2019, so almost a year from now. Um, and part of that is just that you, know, you would have 120 days, that would be the, you know, you have that time to get your congressional notification, Congress has time to respond and look at that plan, you're already almost at the six month mark, and then you know, from a realistic perspective, um, October 1st is the start of a new fiscal year. Um, and so for budget reasons, it would be pretty hard to try to mid-year um, get additional funds or change funding structures to be able to fund the new agency. And so it, it kind of makes sense to start with, um, to start at the beginning of a fiscal year. So I think there are still questions about whether um, OPIC would start doing, like, for example, some equity loan, uh, like, you know, equity investments within that time period before the DFC is officially started. So there are still obviously some remaining questions. There's a lot of people who I think now are, the conversations have already started. It's not like people have been sitting and not planning for this moment. And now I think, you know, in, in earnest, those processes um, get underway. And there's a series of consultations about how do you stand up the individual pieces? How do we ensure that, um, you know, it sort of has the right foundation so it succeeds. I understand not wanting to put the cart before the horse in that regard. What are the big, looking ahead, what are the big questions that stick out in your mind? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that some of the questions, you know, will be about, you know, about the timeline. Um, I think it will be about how do you stand up these new authorities? What do, what, what do they actually look like in, in practice once they're, sort of designed and we have more information about them. I think there are questions about what the sort of portfolio of the new institution will look like and if that will change. Will there be a shift to low income, lower middle income countries? Will there be a push to do more investing? Because one of the key things the bill does is raise the cap. Um, so the new agency where um, can invest up to $60 billion. Um, I think OPIC currently invests about 24 billion so that they would have a lot more room to grow. I think a lot of people caution not just trying to get to 60 billion overnight. I don't think um, that's gonna happen certainly, but I think that there is, um, you know, there's just questions about what exactly that lending will look like. It's just about as time consuming to do a much smaller loan in a low income country um, as it is to do a magnitudes larger loan in a more stable environment. Um, and so I think there are questions about, you know, will they do more smaller loans? Will they continue to do some of the bigger loans in, you know, middle income countries that will allow you to balance a portfolio and still return money to the um, US government, which has been sort of an important piece of OPIC's legacy and, and what people expect from the DFC. Yeah, certainly. I mean, early on in the Trump administration, when there was talk of you know, reducing or doing away with OPEC, and everyone kind of said, wait, this is an agency that makes money for the government. Don't do that. Yeah. Well, sure. Idva, thank you so much for joining me this week. And for anyone who is looking to stay on top of this issue, you can follow Idva on Twitter at Idva Sal and keep on top of all of her latest reporting on devx.com. Thank you again. Thank you. And now for a quick news roundup for this week. The 73rd UN General Assembly saw progress on some things, but not others. Education saw a round of firm commitments, as did climate. While tuberculosis and non-communicable diseases, which both had high-level meetings, were left with mostly talk and little action. 
On the topic of non-communicable diseases, also known as NCDs, the WHO held a tobacco control conference this week in Geneva aimed at advancing the implementation of the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. The meetings were plagued by an industry presence, which advocates say caused disruption at the conference. Across the world, a decade since Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe's worst cholera outbreak, the waterborne disease has reappeared. Health workers and other staff are struggling to contain the cases, which are mostly originating from high-density suburbs. And finally, the World Bank annual meetings are taking place next week in Bali, Indonesia. We'll be on the ground covering the latest developments in human capital, climate change, and acting on digital development. Make sure to sign up for our DevEx at World Bank newsletter. You can find it on Twitter at twitter.com devex. And join us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.